The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. As usual, there are Bibles underneath your chairs if you're on the sides and in the seat pocket in front of you if you're in the middle. And um, I'd encourage you to bring your Bible with you if you have one that you like to use devotionally and use that here on Sundays as well. But if you didn't bring one, you're welcome to use these. And if you don't have one, you're welcome to take one of these with you. Um, We're going to continue in the book of John today. We've been in the book of John now. This is our fifth week. And I think we're going to do one more, maybe two more, and then we'll take a break from John for a while. But we're going through the whole book, uh, A to Z, 1 to 21, a little bit at a time. And we're going to, we're going to do it in pieces over the next year or more, probably. Um, but today is uh, a passage from John chapter 2, which we'll get to in just a minute. Um, but if you are an artisan regular, um, meaning that you've been with us for like three months at least, and you, you come to church about half the time <laughs> or more, uh, you may remember this passage because we actually just got this passage during the season of Lent in March. Now, we decided after, you know, well after that was over to go through the book of John, and I didn't realize that we'd be duplicating this passage so soon. Um, but that's okay because many of you wouldn't have been here for that week, and uh, the rest of you have probably forgotten it. Um, and so uh, this will be a, just like a whole new world for us today. But I'm actually taking a different angle on it. But if you're interested in hearing that other one, if you really like this passage, after, if you find that after today you really like it, the other one is still available via podcast. You can go and listen to it. It was from March 11th. So if you want to go back and get that at any time, you can. Well, not at any time. I'd appreciate it if you didn't do it right now. Uh, but you can do it whenever you want to after that. So today's passage is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, and if you're using the Red Bibles, this is on page 863. We always give you the page number so it's easier to get to. If you brought your own Bible, you're kind of on your own. And what I want to do is look at this passage in two separate pieces, because I think there's two sections here uh, that, that sort of are a natural place to break it apart. So the first section is verses 13 through 17. And I will read that portion to you now. It says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, it always says up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was at the highest point in the region. Uh, In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, He drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, That last Uh, references to Psalm 69, 
um, which we're not going to look at today, but if you'd like to go and find out what it says, you can do that. Understood afterwards to be kind of a, a, something that prefigures Jesus and his, uh, his suffering. So, if you don't know anything about what is going on historically here and, and religiously in the temple, this may seem odd to you that Jesus suddenly went ballistic and made a whip and drove the animals out and then upset the tables and poured out the money and told the people with the birds, you know, get out of here. And so I want to give you a, an explanation of what's going on. This will be a little bit briefer than the explanation I gave when I did this a few months ago. Again, if you're interested in the details of this, you could find more about it if you just go listen to that podcast from March 11th. But first of all, it's Passover, and Passover is one of the high holy days of the year for Jewish people. And at this time, it was expected that uh, every Jew would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. All of those scattered throughout this uh, kind of Palestinian basin would have to return to Jerusalem on days like Passover to worship there in a special way, to offer sacrifices uh, for their, their sin and to, um, to be present in this very important place where God's physical location was especially strong. So they had to make this journey to Jerusalem for Passover. And they had to sacrifice when they got there, but for most people it would not have been practical to bring the animal for sacrifice along with them on the journey. And so what could happen is you could purchase the animal once you arrived. You could purchase your, your sheep or your, uh, your cow, your bull. Um, and there were allowances for people who were poorer that they wouldn't have to buy a big, heavy, beast of burden type animal. They could buy a bird. A dove would be kind of the lowest level where you could do that. And so it was, it, the, the religious authorities had this little side business going where they would sell the animals to people who were coming for sacrifice. And the other thing that had to happen when you got to the temple is you had to pay your temple tax. See, there was a tax on just the, the, the usage of this temple, which, by the way, had been destroyed a couple of times and was in, in, in the process of reconstruction, was nearing the end of this long, decades-long reconstruction which you'll see in the next section of the passage today. But you had to pay a tax to use the temple. Um, this was not a libertarian kind of uh, religious system. And so the religious authorities had a second side business where you would change your money when you got there because you certainly can't bring Gentile money into the holy Jewish temple to pay your tax. So you'd have to change out the coins from the Roman coins or whatever, whatever money you had changed it to Jewish money, which was ceremonially clean and could be used to pay your temple tax. So with these two side businesses, what people were doing, what the religious authorities were doing, was essentially exploiting people's religious faith. And even worse than that, they were exploiting especially the religious faith of the very poor. And even worse than that, they were exploiting this very central and important part of religious practice, the very way in which people were atoned, in which the sins of the people was atoned for. This word atonement for word nerds is really fun because you can see the word. It's, it's at-one-ment. It's the way we are united or reunited with God. Atonement is how our sins are paid for. 
And so as Christians, we have, you know, I'm not going to spoil the surprise here, but we have a different perspective on how that happens. But there's lots of different theories about how the work of Jesus is, is effective for the, our forgiveness. And um, those are theories of the atonement. But the atonement of the Jewish sacrificial system happened in the temple, especially on these high holy days. And the religious leaders had said, okay, we've got the people right where we want them. If they don't make these sacrifices, if they don't pay this temple tax, their entire relationship with God and their community is distorted and blown apart. Let's just, uh, let's just jack up that exchange rate a little bit. Let's just sell those doves and sheep at a little bit of a premium. And so this is what made Jesus so furious. It wasn't necessarily that there was some commerce going on near the temple. It was that this exploitation was happening, this profiteering in the name of religion, specifically in the place of atonement. But how do we personalize this story or this, this first part of the story? Because it's safe to say, I think, that most of us don't spend our days finding ways to exploit poor people with a clever system of monetizing religion. I, I can't speak for everybody in the room, but I think that's probably safe to say that that is not our failing as people. So we don't have money tables and things like that for Jesus to overturn. But I wonder, what, what is it that we do hold to that Jesus might want to overturn? I mean, forget the corruption for a minute. Again, I think we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt there. But think maybe more about another C word, comfort. Because you could look at the, the particular corruption of these officials that way too, that they were making themselves comfortable within their religious system. And so what structures might exist in our own lives and in our own practice of faith where we have gotten overly comfortable, where we've gotten complacent or neglectful or just plain soft? Because I think the thing about Jesus is that he tends to turn over our tables no matter what is on them. Jesus is generally not interested in allowing you to keep doing exactly what you're doing for as long as you want. And if you're going to make Jesus your temple, which by the way was the point of that last sermon on this passage, that Jesus' body in his crucifixion and resurrection was the new temple, that this old system was gone anyway, that the new system of atonement is in Jesus. But if you want to make Jesus your temple, the place where you find God's presence localized, the place where you find your forgiveness. He's going to rearrange your furniture. <laughs> he just is. Maybe it's a pattern of behavior, of sin in your life that separates you from God. And Jesus is going to flip that table over. You're not going to be able to keep doing whatever you want to do. Maybe it's a particular wrong belief about God that you've been raised to believe or some other way come to believe something that's not true about Him. And that's a barrier between you and God. 
Jesus takes your little pet theologies and just flips that table over sometimes. Maybe it's a complacency about the fact that we are all called, all of us, to work together to bring about the reality of the kingdom of God now. Not to just sit on our seats and wait for Jesus to come back and fix everything, but that we are called to be His body, His hands and feet in a hurting world today and tomorrow and every day for as long as He gives us to keep doing it. It's pretty easy to get complacent about that because it's a lot less comfortable to, to try to work for justice and, and, and to, to share the gospel and to bring about the, the good news in all of its splendor. It's a lot harder to do that. Maybe that's the table that Jesus is going to turn over for you. But whatever it might be, I would wager that each one of us has some table in our temple, if you will, that needs to be flipped over. And so what I want to do right now is give you a moment of meditation. I want to give you one minute to ask Jesus, what table in my temple needs overturning. This is a very personal uh, moment. It's, it, we don't want to, we, often we think about this thing as a community. I want you to think about it for you as an individual. What is the table in your temple that, that Jesus might want to flip over? I'm going to give you a minute or two of silence. Listen to him. Maybe do that palms thing that Pastor Mike suggested a minute ago. Receive from him the word that he has for you just in this minute. Okay, so it is not a comfortable thing to have your tables turned on you. And the, uh, these religious authorities um, find this out just as you probably found it out. And so I want to read the second half of the passage to see their response to Jesus' actions. And I think that their response is really interesting when you keep in mind the focus of our study um, of the Gospel of John. And uh, just so you know, the, the religious authorities throughout the Gospel of John are generally referred to as the Jews, which is kind of a harsh phrase uh, to our ear today, just to say the Jews. Uh, it sounds terribly anti-Semitic. You can almost imagine Mel Gibson yelling it uh, in a drunken rage. But <laughs> um, that's not what it meant in this in this text. So you're going to hear this phrase in just a second. What it, just, it just means the, the Jewish religious authorities. So um, here it goes. Verses 18 through 25. The Jews then said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. I mentioned that a minute ago. 
After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone, for he himself knew what was in everyone. So again, I think this response of the Jews here is interesting, given our focus during this series in the Gospel of John. Remember, we call this series Signs of Faith because the whole Gospel of John is dedicated to signs. There's seven specific miracles that John tells us about. Actually, an eighth one is the the resurrection of Jesus, but that's kind of like a a meta-miracle. The seven signs of the Gospel of John are these miracles. And John says at the end of his Gospel, and we've looked at it uh, a couple of times during this series, he did all kinds of other things, but these signs are told to you so that you might believe in him and that in believing him you might have life. That's why we've called it signs of faith. But these religious prophet makers spoke of signs in a different way, didn't they? In that first verse, what did they say? They wanted a sign, not that would help them believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They wanted a sign that would prove to them that Jesus' authority was in place, that he had some right to flip over their tables and drive their cows out with whips and take the doves out of the temple, dump out their money. That's the sign they wanted. So there's this contrast between the signs that John is talking about, and he even hints at it there, Uh, In verse uh, 23, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, John doesn't tell us what they are, but again, there's lots of other ones he says at the end that he doesn't talk about. Those are the signs that John's concerned with, and these leaders are concerned with a sign that demands Jesus explain himself. What right do you have? So if we want to make an effort to personalize this part of the story, this second half of the passage, we have to ask ourselves, what is our version of demanding a sign from Jesus? After he's turned over our tables, and I, I hope that he at least started to turn over a table for you just a minute ago, but after that happens, how do we respond? Because maybe, maybe our response is similar to that of these religious leaders where we feel angry Maybe, maybe we're irritated that, that, our, that our old philosophy, our old way of looking at the world has been driven out with a whip. Maybe we feel lost and scared and disoriented and confused. Maybe we feel cheated out of something that we thought we deserved and we expected to be able to hold on to. Again, it probably looks different for all of us. But I would wager that we are all feeling or have felt at some time and have said some variation of what the religious leaders said to Jesus, which is, what sign can you show us? What sign can you show me for doing this, whatever this is for you? Now, for you, your version of demanding a sign, maybe maybe you literally want a sign. 
If you grew up in the church, anybody know the expression, like, put out a fleece? Do you ever hear this expression in the church growing up? This was big in my particular church culture. Um, it goes back to this Old Testament story where Gideon put out a fleece and, and based his decisions on whether it was wet in the dew or not, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it was different at different times. And uh, so if to put out a fleece means you're going to put something out there and based on what happens, you're going to take that to mean that God is telling you one thing or another. Despite the fact that God worked that way with Gideon, I don't actually believe that's usually the way he tells us what he wants from us. And yet, it's kind of an easy thing to do, isn't it? Because it removes yourself, you remove from yourself the responsibility of trying to act and think in a way that, that's critical and takes into account the, the witness of Scripture and of our brothers and sisters in Christ and of church history. That's a lot of hard work. I don't really want to think quite so much about that. I'll just say, Lord, if it rains tomorrow, that means you want me to ask her to marry me. And if it doesn't rain tomorrow, that means you want me to go on my Mexican trip by myself, right? So we put out a fleece. Maybe, maybe you put out a, I mean, I'm making fun of it a little bit, but be honest, we've all done something like that before, haven't we? Okay. So maybe you are literally demanding a sign, but really I want to think about this a little more figuratively, this asking for a sign, because sometimes demanding a sign, as it were, might just be flat-out disobedience. You might just say no. That table, Jesus, you are not going to turn that one over right now. And the, the, the <laughs> Jesus... Uh, at least in my experience, is not going to physically appear with a whip. Nowadays, he doesn't tend to turn over the tables without our permission, without our obedience, without our participation in the work that he wants to do in our life. So you, you might be flatly disobeying. That might be your response, your version of demanding a sign. More often though your version of demanding a sign might be a yes but, a yeah but, <laughs> right? I have the sense that Jesus wants me to do X. I'm going to do 75% of X. But that last 25%, you can turn over the table. Just let me let me just take this particular money bag off of it first. I'm going to set it over here. Go ahead, Jesus. I'm all yours. And so you might demand a sign, literally or figuratively, but here's the thing. Usually the signs that we demand are not the signs that Jesus will give. The signs that the religious leaders wanted, that's not what they got. They got a sign, all right, but it wasn't the one that they wanted. And so I want to ask you to have another moment of meditation. And I want you to ask Jesus, how am I demanding the wrong sign today? What is it that, does that make sense? Again, literal signs or figurative signs, your response to Jesus turning over your tables where you're not quite letting him have all of his way with, with your life how am I demanding the wrong sign? Take a minute or two and have that moment of meditation.
um, just so you know, uh, whenever I ask you to do something like this, I always try to do it myself, too. Um, I, don't, I try not to ask of you anything that I won't do myself. And um, I'll just share in, in somewhat general terms in about 30 seconds here what my experience was with these two moments of meditation. The first moment of meditation, I was reminded of something that I felt fairly clearly that God had asked me to do um, a while ago. It was, uh, it was January. Um, and I haven't done it yet. And it's something that takes me out of my comfort zone. So that's the kind of table flipping that Jesus was doing with me in that moment. Uh, And I realized that my version of demanding a sign had basically been disobedience. I just had failed to do this thing. Um, And I have have good excuses for disobedience. I I forget things, and I'm busy, and some things are harder than others. And um, so... I don't know how that went for you, but if nobody else gets anything out of this sermon today, <laughs> I seem to have. So uh, there's, there's that. <laughs> See, Jesus did eventually give them a sign. The greatest sign of all. He gave them the sign of his death and of his resurrection. He gave them the sign of the cross. That's not the sign they were expecting, it's not what they meant. But Jesus doesn't usually give us the sign that we're expecting. That sign is not even the type of sign that even really makes sense. This is is one of the things that makes Christianity ring true, is that this part of it doesn't make sense. Have you ever read a novel where everything just made sense? There There was nothing that made you go, huh? Where it just, it was predictable. Have you ever watched a movie? Just utterly predictable from point A to point B to point C. You know, like within 10 minutes of the movie, who's going to die first, who's going to die last, if it's a horror movie. You know, those stories are not true. I mean, obviously they're fiction, but they're also not true. They're not truthful. Christianity is a truthful story because it has this twist in it that we don't expect. And when Christianity started to spread, the disciples and the apostles who were spreading this, this new faith were very clear about this, and they, they actually embraced the counterintuitive reality that the king of the world, the king of the universe, might submit himself to death on a cross. That was at the very center of what they preached all throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the apostle Paul made a very famous statement about this counterintuitive reality in the, his letter to the, the Corinthians. It's the first letter. First Corinthians, it's in the first chapter, and I'm going to read this to you now. And if you'd like to follow along, um, your Red Bibles, page 926. It's verses 18 uh, through 31. So it's, it's some of the first words in his first letter to the Corinthian church. This is what he says, and keep in mind this counterintuitive reality where everything seems to be flipped. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided 
through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is one of those passages of the Bible that seems to twist and turn and go up and down and back and forth. And if you, if you, if you just read it when you're the tiniest bit tired, you're sunk. Um, <clears throat> but this is exactly what I'm talking about, how the, the story of Christianity has this twist in it where you would expect the, the, the return of the, the king to come in glory and conquer things with the sword, but he conquers it at the cross. St. John Chrysostom, uh, in a homily, a sermon that he gave on this passage from 1 Corinthians that I just read, said something really neat I want to read to you now. He said, the gospel produces the exact opposite of what people want and expect, but it is that very fact that persuades them to accept it in the end. The apostles won their case not simply without a sign, but by something that appeared to go against all the known signs. So, Jesus is going to rearrange your furniture, as I said. He's going to turn over your tables. But the sign that gives him the authority to do that, and the sign that calls you to submit to that authority, is nothing less than his death and resurrection. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this uh, amazing witness from your word. For this story that reminds us of Jesus and his ministry, his desire to overturn exploitation, to change the center and the focal point of worship, to be the source of our atonement. And the fact that He gives a sign and offers one, but it's not the one that we demand. And yet it is the greatest sign that we could ever hope to see. Lord, we place our trust in the sign 
that we see in the cross of your death and your resurrection. We pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that you would fill us, strengthening us to walk in your ways, to be your hands and feet, to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Well, the sign that Jesus offered was his death and resurrection. And um, one of the ways that we think about communion, which we take together every week, is that it is a reenactment, a dramatic retelling, if you will, of that great story of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when you come to this table and tear off a piece of the bread, you're not just remembering that his body was broken. You are actually breaking his body. And when you dip it in the wine or the juice, you are not just remembering his blood, which was shed for the forgiveness of sins, but you are, in a sense, shedding that blood. You are participating in the retelling of that grand story. It's a momentous thing. Uh, and yet it's, it's what Jesus himself asked of his disciples. That when we do this, we remember him. That whenever we come together, we do it. So, for those of you who are following Jesus, who would call yourselves Christians, uh, this table is open for you. We have an open table at Artisan, and uh, there are no denominational or church restrictions on your participation in this sacrament. However, it is something that is reserved for people who are following Jesus. And uh, if you are not in that group of people, uh, you are so welcome here. We love the fact that you're here with us today. Um, this probably is not the time for you to do this, uh, unless you're sensing a conversion moment happening, which would make it kind of a cool thing to do. But we would invite you to sit and think and meditate and, and pray, to respond to God in whatever other way He might be speaking to your heart. Um, and then we're going to sing some more songs together, and, and so we'll continue to worship Him. Uh, but the table is open. I invite you to come when you're ready.